You're now listening to the Working Poet Radio Show. This is your host, Joseph Lappin, and I'm here with Jennifer Haig. With her fifth novel, Heat and Light, Jennifer Haig returns to Bakerton, Pennsylvania, a dying cold town that's offered a second chance when the natural gas industry comes to town. Her previous books include Faith, The Condition, Baker Towers, and Mrs. Kimball, winner of the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Fiction, and the short story collection News from Heaven, winner of the Massachusetts Book Award and the Penn New England Award in Fiction. And she does live in Boston, and she's a graduate of the Iowa's Writers' Workshop. Uh, of course, I love Boston, if you know the podcast. Um, you know, Jennifer, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Jim. Okay, great. So we're going to kick this off with true or false. True or false statements. You're going to tell me if it's true or false, and you're going to tell me why. Okay, ready? This is one I know you get a lot of. Heat and Light was a political book. True by accident. I didn't conceive of it as a political book, but it's impossible to tell this story without being political. This is, um, like a lot of my work, it really is a story about class. And I think that's a subject Americans are very uncomfortable with. It's something we don't talk easily or often about. You know, we're just starting to talk about race in this country. I think we're decades away from having an honest conversation about class. Um, Heat and Light is, uh, as you said, set in this dying coal town in western Pennsylvania, very much like the town where I grew up. And it's a place that's not had a lot of good news in the past 30 years. Mm -hmm. So when people have this sudden opportunity to lease their mineral rights to the gas industry, it really does seem like they've won the lottery. I don't know how much you know about fracking, but it, there's been a lot of controversy around it. It is a way of extracting natural gas that is potentially very damaging to the environment. Um, in New York State, there was a well-organized political protest against it that was successful. They got a moratorium mm-hmm. uh, put in place in New York State that will, that will continue as long as Cuomo is the governor. But nothing like that happened in Pennsylvania. And I... As I was writing this novel, I was following the political developments in New York, and I was fascinated by how differently the story played out there. Mm. And um, the question why was what powered me through the writing of this book. And uh, I came to some conclusions about that. But one of them has to do with class, that um, the people who are protesting fracking are coming from a very different class background than the people who actually live in these towns. So why are people scared to talk about class? Breaking from a true or false mode here. We'll get back to it, audience. Don't worry. Well, we have a powerful mythology in this country. It's kind of a fairy tale that we we are raised on. You know, we all subscribe to the belief that um, the American dream is possible, and it doesn't matter where you come from or who your parents are. If you are smart and ambitious and work hard, you can have whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And I was raised on that on that notion. Um, and it's something we hold dear as Americans. And to talk about class um, complicates that narrative. You mm-hmm. know, it sort of ruins the fairy tale. Mm. Gotcha. So, true or false, if you if a writer starts out writing a book with a political bent, the book will be terrible. True. Mm. I think that's true. If you have a political axe to grind and that is the reason you're telling the story, it's going to be an awful book. Mm. When I started writing Heat and Light, I didn't know very much about fracking. I had this vague sense that it was a bad thing. 
um, but I, I couldn't have told you why. So I had to do a lot of um, remedial study just to understand um, what fracking is and why it's controversial and, and why people have such wildly divergent opinions about it. Um, but I did not come to the story with, um, with a clear political position. Mm. And I think if I had, it would have been a very different book. Mm. What happened to me in, this writing, in writing of this book is that um, the more I learned about fracking, the clearer it became that there were no villains in this story. Mm. That every people on all sides of this debate have very good reasons for believing as they do and acting as they do. And once I understood that, it became impossible to write this book in a fair way. Um, it's a story with many point of view characters. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing this question from many different vantage points through many different sets of eyes. And I found that was necessary in order to do justice to this, to this very complicated subject. True or false, writing a book with this many uh, point of views and perspectives is very challenging. True. I've never done it before, and I don't know that I'll ever do it again. It was something that this story demanded. You know, this is something I've learned over six books, that um, at the outset I always have this feeling that I'm overshooting. I'm not a good enough writer mm. to write this every story. Every time. Every time. And you know what? I'm right every time. I'm mm. not a good enough writer. And it's in the process of writing that book that I become that good enough writer. Mm. You know, it's what Mao Zedong said, we learn to fight the war by fighting the war. Mm. And that is certainly true of writing novels. You should always overshoot. Did you, did you, when did you recognize that? That you had to get through that, this war, you're saying. When did, when did that click for you? Second like? book. Second, Second book. book is really hard. You know, the first book you never believe you're going to finish it. You don't believe anybody's ever going to read it anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's less complicated mm -hmm. in a way. My relationship to my second book was so different. That was Baker Towers. It was the, the first book I set in this part of the world, mm -hmm. Western Pennsylvania. Um, and maybe that's part of the reason why it was so fraught. I had such an emotional connection to that landscape mm -hmm. and, and those people. But more than that, my second book um, was was part of a contract with a publisher, so I knew that somebody was going to read it, that it did matter mm -hmm. if I finished it. And so I had a different sense of external pressure with that book than I had with the first one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that has remained true with every successive book. Gotcha. Yeah. So, true or false, you could write about Bakerton for the rest of your life? False. Mm. I think I write well about this place um, because I sometimes look away from it. I have to. Typically, I'll write a Bakerton book and think, I am never writing about that place again. I have said everything there is to say about that place. It's a, it's a challenging place. It's a place that breaks my heart. I'm done with these people. They're dead to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that every time. But then something happens, and something draws me back to that landscape and that world. Um, but I, I do enjoy writing about where I live now. I've lived in Boston for 15 years. Mm -hmm. It's a great subject. It's um, also a, a, a complicated place to write about, and it's also a place where class issues are important. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that's part of what I find compelling about Boston as a subject. So I've set two novels there already, mm -hmm. and I think the next one will be set there also. Oh, the next one will? Yes. Oh, great. True or false, writing is a bad marriage. 
I saw you say this somewhere. Writing a novel is like a bad marriage. Okay. So there's a difference for me between writing novels and writing short stories. Writing a short story is like dating. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a very small investment. If it goes badly, it goes badly. You get, you know, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a, you get an anecdote out of it anyway. If you burn up a month or two writing a short story, it's not going to kill you. Mm-hmm. With a novel, the stakes are much higher. The investment is um, proportionately greater. I once spent a whole year on a novel and threw it away. Mm-hmm. And in that year, I did nothing else. I didn't teach a class. I didn't write a book review. I don't have a job. I don't have kids. I did nothing for an entire year but write this novel that ultimately I had to throw away. Mm. And that haunts me. I know it will probably happen again to me at some point. There is simply no way for a writer to guard against that. Mm. You take that risk every time. So, um, you know, a novel is fraught in that way. The stakes are high as they are with a marriage. Also, in a novel, you're living with mistakes you made last week, last month, last year. Mm. With what a short you, what story, do you mean not by so. That? Living with mistakes. Well, you take wrong turns in the writing process, and you have to figure out where you went wrong and then correct it. Mm-hmm. Bang Yui in Boston so you, language. Yeah. So you don't believe that there's no such thing as mistakes in art, then? I mean, there's there's no accidents. I guess they don't take you direction. You have to go back and find and correct. I'm not sure I understand the question. Mm. So. Pollock said there's no accidents in art. And you're saying... I think it's all an accident. Ah. Every every bit of it is an accident. Um, and, you know, sometimes those are very fruitful accidents, and sometimes they are disastrous. Mm. It's not always good news. Mm. But I think it's all an accident. Gotcha. I'm not somebody who works with an outline or a clear plan. No of outline at all? No. Never? No. Wow. I, I tried it once. And I spent about three months writing that outline. It was a great outline. Yeah. What an outline. I never wrote the book. Oh, God. Because once I had gone through all of that, I, you know, it sort, of, it sort of ruined the suspense in a way. I write a novel for the same reasons I read a novel, mm-hmm. and that's to figure out what happens next, mm-hmm. you know, to see where it goes. If I know where it's going to go, then there's nothing to... Um, induce me to write it. Mm. So I, I've learned that, that that novel, that outline is a, is a very bad thing for me as a novelist. Mm. Mm. I gotcha. So I'm really curious, and it, we're going to finish the true and false, and we're going to finish up with a couple questions here, but I'm really curious about, you know, when you're looking at your, tell me about Barnesboro, where you grew up in, in time, when you're looking at it, I want to know, when did you realize this is uh, creative fodder? This is something that can be a novel. This can be art. It took me a long time to come to that conclusion. When I was growing up there, I felt like I had must have done something terrible in a past life, mm. that I was born in this place. Yeah, I was atoning for some past sins, clearly, because it really did feel like, you know, the edge of nowhere. Mm. I, I felt like I was nobody from nowhere. You were, caught, you were aware of that at the time. Oh, as, as a teenager particularly. Yeah. Um, by that point, the coal mines were already faltering. Mm-hmm. In a few years, the coal industry would be completely finished mm-hmm. in my part of the world. So it was a fairly hopeless time. And, you know, this was the age before the Internet. The town was much more isolated then than it is today. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to be anywhere else. I wanted to go anywhere else. Um, it didn't seem to me a fascinating subject at all when I was a teenager. It took some years and, and a lot of travel and seeing other places and, and getting um, some distance from the subject to make me understand 
how compelling and interesting it was. Mm-hmm. I think for a fiction writer, there are two kinds of stories. They're the ones you choose and the ones that choose you. Mm. And I didn't have a choice with Barnesborough. I mean, that's, that's the story life gave me to tell. And I came to the conclusion early on that if I don't tell it, nobody else will, because it's not a part of the world that gets written about. Mm. You know, when I was growing up there, I saw no reflection of the world I recognized in movies, in novels, on television. It was invisible from popular culture. And um, I think it would have meant a lot to me as a young person to see that somebody thought this world and this way of life was important enough to be written about. Mm. Um, So I do feel a real obligation to that place and, and to kids like me growing up there that you know that this place is it's not nowhere it isn't irrelevant mm. whenever I talk to people and that's a really a beautiful answer uh, when I talk to people in this show almost always on our, on their creative journey you know like to become a writer to become a you know a graphic designer whatever it is there's a moment where they're growing up and they realize they're an outsider and that they're different somehow than everyone else, and they need to express that. Was there a moment like that for you? I don't think there was a particular moment, but growing up in the town uh, I came from, I did feel somewhat different. Uh, my parents were school teachers, I, so I'm the granddaughter of two coal miners. Mm-hmm. Four of my uncles were coal miners. This was a company town that I grew up in. It was the only local industry, so all my friends growing up were the children of coal miners. Mm-hmm. I did feel that my family was somewhat different um, because we had books in the house. Mm. When I think of the kids I grew up with, I'm pretty sure nobody else actually had a dictionary in the house. I'd swear mm. to it. Mm. And, you know, I, I was the child of people who loved books and read all the time. And so the, the culture of my family was quite different from the culture of the town as a whole. And I think if I'd been born to different parents, I'd be doing hair now. Mm. You know, it's um, because... I was very fortunate in this way that both my parents are very discriminating readers and were always putting the right book in my hands at the right time. Mm. It, it was determinative for me. And the final question is, I read somewhere that most of your friends now are writers. I think you said this. But that clearly wasn't the case growing up. So when did you start thinking that this could be a career? That you could make this into something that was... Because it seems like if you don't see it, there's nothing in your life that says you can do this... How do you know that you can't? You don't. The short answer is you don't know. I always wrote. I've always written since I was a little kid. That's not an unusual an unusual story from a writer. Um, but the idea of making a career of it, that's that's a different question entirely. And if you're if you're from a working class background, if you don't come from privilege, it's a bigger leap still. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people like me graduate from college with massive student loan debt and the the immediate concern is I got to get some kind of job so mm-hmm. I can start you know chipping away at this debt and so it it takes real audacity to think you know I can make a career doing this thing that seems on its face wildly impractical mm-hmm. um, so it's you know it's an easier entry for some people I have um, friends who you know, come from from a more comfortable background, who come from means. And I think it's not as difficult a thing for them to imagine. Gotcha. Well, great. You know, thank you so much for being on the Working Poet Radio Show. And this was just really a pleasure. Um, 
Anything else we should know coming up? Uh, when's the next book? Do you know? I have no idea. Years. I think we're looking Whoa, at multiple wow, years. Wow. Yeah, you know, the last one took me five years. Um, it's it's not a quick process. So. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, you are no longer listening to the Working Poet Radio Show.